you really love music, you're in a state. This is a podcast about music if you really love music. Making it, writing it, recording it, listening to it, making out to it, hopefully in a room with speakers, pushing air through the space, not some earbuds cutting you off from the universe with only a GPS system to find your way. But this is a podcast, so audiophile expectations need to be lowered. This is Porter Block, broadcasting from New York City. Had a chance to sit down with Stu Fine, industry veteran, A&R executive. He helped shape the sound of hip-hop over the last 25 years, and he's worked across multiple genres, which we'll talk about. But he started K-Tel. K-Tel presents Blockbuster, a great new LP, 20 original hits, original stars, KC and the Sunshine Band. He started off at K-Tel. They were really an early... Uh, outlier, an early disruptor selling records on TV. It actually was a stage in my career that led me to start my own label, which was you know the hip-hop side of my background, Wild Pitch. But prior to that, I had worked for some major labels for 10 years before that, between RCA, Polygram, and Arista, right. which is where I grew up and learned the business. The good old days of the music business. I think the industry has shifted completely, not all for the better. I mean, there were things about the old days that were thrilling. Prior to coming to New York and getting started at RCA Records, where I was a publicity writer and photographer, so I was totally hooked by the time I graduated from college. I knew there was nothing else that mattered to me in life than working in the music business. Got hired by RCA, worked there in the publicity department for a year. My best friend in the company was a terrific A&R man, Stephen Holden, and I spent every day in his office at the end of the day listening to demos with him, and I knew that A&R was what I wanted to do. Wrote Clive Davis a letter, he answered me, hired me, my first A&R job was at Arista. I learned an enormous amount stripping songs to diverse chorus and structure and, and learned how to sequence a record, learned what should go into hiring a producer, knowing how to go about the process of making records. Arista was in the process of resurrecting the careers of the Kinks, working with groundbreaking artists like Patti Smith, who took the Lower East Side and took it into the mainstream. The day I started was the day Patti Smith's Horses record came out. So Patti record one, and I was already a huge fan of Patti's. I was thrilled to be at the label where she was having her first major league you know, record come out, brought the Lower East Side into the mainstream, you know, literally with that release, and spent three nights a week at CBGB's for the next 10 years as an A&R guy, you know, going out to listen and watch that scene develop. The vibe was pretty different. Uh, You know, in those days, bands like Television, The Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads, it was all CBGB's The Mud Club. It was downtown. With hip-hop, when I got into hip-hop, which was 10 years later and after my experience with KTEL, which led me to that, I started going to the places like the Latin Quarter. There was a skating rink on the Upper West Side, on 
across the street from Yankee Stadium. It's called the Rooftop. And it was an unbelievable place. There was a place in the South Bronx called the Zodiac. And some of the places where I'd go oozed of hip-hop. You know, there started to be a club scene here, a place called Powerhouse became a place where Tribe Called Quest, the Jungle Brothers, EPMD, Big Daddy Kane, G-Rap, you know, it was like the place. Public Enemy would hang out there. People like Terminator X were the DJs. It was an unbelievable scene. It was so exciting. He realized the compilation album could be an onerous process, a litigious one when clearing master recordings with major labels. However, he was dealing with hip-hop entrepreneurs who were dealing freely in the business with no constraint and a new business model open to business development. Didn't know what I was going to do for a while. I started managing bands, met the people that ran KTEL, talked them into hiring me to put compilation albums together, and they had the big TV-driven hits record and it might have had tracks from all the major labels and that would take about two years literally to clear and during that time i could put 10 rap records together going to profile and tommy boy and select and def jam and in 15 minutes i could literally clear a rap record Stu had the crazy idea that people in hip-hop actually wanted to do business the owners of the labels were kids. They were. It was Corey Robbins. It was Tom Silverman. It was Leor and Russell. It was Fred Maneo. Terrific, intelligent, business-oriented people who would get an offer from KTEL and say yes and had the right to make that clearance. They didn't need manager's approval, lawyer's approval, then the artist's approval. You know, it was a very simple process. And during that time, I started listening to to what was going on in the hip-hop world, and I fell madly in love with the music. All of a sudden, hip-hop gave me a jolt of energy and adrenaline and purpose. Hip-hop, which took a lot of the danger out of rock and roll and youth culture, and grunge and what was happening in Seattle with the music scene there. That was an organic movement. There was a minute where... I think the Seattle bands were dangerous, and it was thrilling. I remember was closing my deal at Wild Pitch with EMI, and the VP of A&R was Ron Fair, who's the person who brought me into EMI. And we were in the process of the final stage of negotiation, and he said, somebody just brought me this record, and he dropped the needle on Feels Like Teen Spirit. And the two of us looked at each other like, this is what it's about. Let's talk a little bit about Wild Pitch, because um, you came up with this great idea in hip-hop. People actually want to do business and make records. Took advantage of that and decided to strike it out on your own. Totally by accident. It was almost forced on me. Hip-hop was still not in the mainstream. It was Friday nights from 9 to 12 on KISS and BLS in this city. And then urban stations around the country started doing the same thing. The hip-hop show was on the weekends, or it was at midnight to 3 in the morning. And you had to look for it. You had to search for it and just the way rock and roll was for me when I was a kid WBCN in Boston was not on 24 hours a day it was something called the American Revolution and WBCN by day might have been a news day I don't remember what it was and Peter Wolf of the Jake Isles band was the late night DJ Red Alert and Mr. Magic were the guys here that were doing hip hop from 9 to 12 and I taped literally every weekend and it was thrilling to me there was such an excitement to it and it was our thing because we knew about it. All my rock and roll friends that I had worked with at Polygram or Arista or RCA thought I was insane to get into this. They thought it was a trend that was like dance music and was going to go away. And I said, it's not. It's rebel black rock and roll. In a state 
Big L, rest in peace. Rest in peace. idea of taking a DJ from Houston and an MC from Boston and putting them together, seeing what happened creatively, became known collectively as Gangstar. Somebody brought me a demo of a group called Gangstar, and I fell madly in love with it. Keith E.E., the guru, was the rapper. I did three or four records with him. I'm going to call him Keith because he was Keithy at the time before he was the guru. We did a few records, and the other guys in his group weren't as committed to as he was. His DJ, his second DJ, his second voice. I teamed him up with DJ Mark, the 45 King, who was terrific. He made a great record with him. And as this was going on, I was getting demos from Premier, who was Brooklyn kid, but going to college in Houston and working in the hip hip-hop store in Houston. He mailed me something, or I he picked up the phone after receiving my package, which, you know, had my card and a record in it, and he said, can I send you something? I put him and Guru together. I just felt like he was working with someone that wasn't as committed, and Guru needed an absolute change. I mean, I had the idea of doing it. I felt like I really believed in Guru, and it wasn't quite gelling for us. And I had an idea that when I heard Primo's original demo, like he was the best DJ I had ever heard. He had one mic and a cassette player and two turntables. His MC had the mic. So if they made a mistake, they'd have to start from scratch. And as I was listening, I was like, his rapper isn't very good, but he's amazing. And I got him and Guru to go in the studio. They clicked. They fell madly in love, and, and each of their crews enjoyed each other. And here was Guru was the son of a judge in Boston, Primo, you know, from East New York. So we really got lucky. That was sort of the signature. I mean, that was the record that that launched the label. It was the first album we did. We had done 10 or 12 12-inch singles. So they had a month to write an album. And that's the first album, No More Mr. Nice Guy. So you're at this point doing everything, right? You're the entrepreneur. <laughs> I met Amy, my wife, and started Wild Pitch the same month. Finding the artists and the talent and sniffing around the right people was the thing that sort of came the easiest. I didn't know a lot of the other aspects of the business. I was learning on the fly every day. I was the guy going to the stores. I was the guy making the deals with the one-stops and distributors. And I should have had a couple of partners you know, who were experts in those fields and my label probably would have been more successful my passion and and um, the area that I was drawn to was was the music and finding the artists and being being lucky you know and letting everybody know wherever I went that I'm looking is the artist or the entrepreneur have more control now less control more control but less impact I'm guessing the artist has more control today. And and I think part of it is, as an industry, we've been very bad at showing artists and musicians why they should be with us versus just put music out yourself. So I think an artist can create a little bit of something on their own and probably dictate better terms in the business than when I was doing it. 
Steve Cropper, Stax, Booker T and the MGs, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, the Blues Brothers. I see that you did an A&R director with Steve Cropper. I did. What was that? Thrilling. I got pitched a Steve Cropper record. Steve was interested in doing an homage to his childhood favorite band of all time, which were the Five Royales. And he and his producer partner, John Tiven, pitched me on the idea of doing this. It was a very simple yes. And then took about a year and a half to make the record. And it was Steve and John coming up with this great band in the studio. Steve Jordan and Willie Weeks and his buddies and... A mix of the Blues Brothers and Stax Band. And exactly. Right band. A tremendous record with guests like B.B. King and Stevie Winwood, Lucinda Williams. And, and it was a spectacular record, Sharon Jones. I mean, an unbelievable record. We forget that he, he, he also co-wrote Doc of the Bay and was quite a songwriter, too. So to want to do a kind of cover tribute record. Well, being around him and hearing the inside story on how Otis Redding was discovered and literally flashing back to those days where Stax was in a neighborhood in Memphis where black and white people couldn't go to dinner together, but they worked together at Stax. There was one place where they could socialize together, which happened to be the hotel where Martin Luther King was assassinated, where they would go and hang out together in public. But here were these guys, his band, which were two white people, two black people, the studio band and stacks on all sorts of unbelievable records. And to be around him was thrilling. I think one thing that makes Stu so versatile is his ability to work with artists of all different genres. Boz Gags is a good example. A couple years later, I did, well, around the same time, I did a record with Boz Gags called Memphis, which, which was his career resuscitating record. The day I started working at Savoy, Boz was my first phone call. I wanted to do great records like Somebody Lonely a Dime and, and Moments and those great lowdown, the, the, the Boz funk records. And when he was ready to make a rock record, we jumped in and did it, and the result was Memphis, which Steve Jordan produced. Boz came up with this spectacular list of songs, mostly covers, their chemistry, and this great group of musicians that they brought in, the top studio guys. They went to Memphis for most of it, recorded at... Uh, the Stack Studio, Royal Studio, which was Willie Mitchell's place. Bobby Blue Bland popped in while they were recording. Is there something about um, the place where where you're making the music that has an impact on it? Yes, and and actually, I think Memphis and Nashville are are. A, much more similar today and historically than we ever realized. I mean, they're they're both music towns where people, um, you know, live for what they perform and play. They're both, I think, great musical towns. They're a lot more of a mix today than than in the old days. People go to you know Nashville that aren't country artists, and and of course the country scene is massive there but it's very i think very mixed musically and and welcoming to many genres there's a real excitement in that town what's your go-to record if you're on a saturday night wow 
One of my favorite records of all time is Roxy Music, you know, Flesh and Blood, Avalon. I mean, that Roxy period. But I also still go to the Beatles. You know, 50 years later, Sgt. Pepper still blows me away. Springsteen, Born to Run, still blows me away, as does The Wild, The Innocent, um, Blood on the Tracks, Procol Harum, first couple records, Salty Dog, Shine On Brightly. I just saw The Zombies recently, and, and right. you know how thrilling they still are. And what was the first show you ever saw? First show I saw was actually Frank Zappa and the Mothers as the headliner, and oh, Vanilla geez. Fudge as an opening act, and it was around the time of Uncle Meat, Hot Rats. I point to the first time ever seeing the Allman Brothers as the night that changed my life, and it, it was before they the first record came out. Guess we knew there was a record coming, which came six months later. Guess it was 68 or 69, 69, I guess. I saw them at the Boston Tea Party open for Dr. John. Life change. 30 seconds in, I could tell they were magical. Come on, man. Favorite hip hop album? Probably one of the LL records. I I thought his record, Mama Said Knock You Out, which was Don't call it a comeback. A comeback record for such a young person. After exploding the first couple of records, hit a tough spot, and Mama Said Knock You Out was the comeback record. And being aware that he was not, you know, the top of the heap at that moment. And that he was kind of viewed as a dirty rat because of the you know disses he had had with Ice T and with right. you know the West Coast guys and with Cool Mo D. So that was an important record to me. Stuart Fine has been a success in the music business across multiple genres. He had an important impact on hip-hop in the 1980s and 90s. Grew up under the tutelage of Clive Davis and resurrected the careers of some great rock and rollers in Arister and other major labels. He has a different way of getting at problems and issues in the music business. Most of all, he has an open mind about music, genre, and audience. This is Porter Block in New York City. You can find my music on iTunes and Spotify, Porter Block. Meanwhile, if you love and appreciate music, you're in a state. I'm in a state. 